Good evening. You're on equal footing with Dope Tuzman. I have been very nervous about tonight's show. It's very close to home. I'm going to start by introducing our two esteemed guests. Very lucky to have here in studio with me Richard Reese and on the line from California, Shelley Winner. Our topic this week is one in three, living and working with a criminal record. All right. So we're lucky to have one of the world's leading advocates of restorative justice, Shelley Winner. She has a history with substance abuse. She was in a federal prison. She was released, thank God, in July 2016. Some of you may have seen her TED Talk, which was incredibly impactful and moving about her life journey from what she calls the loser's loop to a winning cycle. Shelly is an executive at a major international technology company. I'm not going to name the company because she's giving her own opinions here, not that of her employer. Through her public speaking, her media advocacy, and the work with her foundation, Winner's Circle, Shelly helps close the gap between soon-to-be-released inmates in prison and technology companies, their future employers. Welcome, Shelly. Thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. Glad, Excited to be here today. Excited to have you. You're a hero of mine. Here in the studio, I'm blessed to be accompanied by a distinguished gentleman, Richard Reese. Richard is a partner at Michaelman and Robinson, a top law firm. He's the chair of that firm's employment practice group. He regularly advises large and medium-sized corporations on complex labor matters, including workforce management of formerly incarcerated individuals. Richard has been recognized as a leader in his field by the National Law Journal, Benchmark Litigation, and he's been included as a super lawyer in the New York area every year in those rankings since 2014. Richard has an impressive string of courtroom victories for his clients, bringing many cases to verdict at both the state and federal level. Richard, welcome. Pleasure to be here. All right, guys. So one in three living and working with a criminal record. So one in three refers to the population of the United States of America. There are, by the latest estimates, between 85 and 90 million people with a criminal record in this country. And... It's close to home because many of you who have listened over time to Equal Footing know that I am a previously incarcerated individual. We each have our own journey. Those of it have, have been through that. I don't have a, a conviction. I was able, thank God, to get to this point in my battle for justice Uh Without, I'm not sure Shelley will educate us, educate us, or perhaps Richard will as well, what constitutes a criminal record, but I never know what to answer when it's asked you. I haven't had a conviction, but I have been arrested. But as a result of the peculiarity of my situation, I was arrested while I was on a business trip overseas, brought up on charges for securities fraud related to a public company 
that I used to be chairman and CEO of. And because I was abroad, I got stuck in a kind of arcane and Byzantine extradition process between the United States, which is where I was charged, and, and Colombia, which is where I was traveling. I have Colombian family, and I was visiting a business project there. This was 2015, and as a result of that uh, arrest and that legal battle, I ended up in a state of limbo. Uh, they call it administrative detention, but in reality, it was a it was a maximum security prison in Colombia. I was in a prison for a time called La Picota, which is uh, regularly ranked by the U.S. State Department and Human Rights Watch and so forth as one of the worst prisons in the world. Some other time we'll do a show on physical and, and sexual abuse in prison and the prevalence of that, which is a, a scourge that we need to come to terms with in society. But I will say that aside from what happened in prison, I do feel like, as, as I heard Shelley refer to in her public speaking, like I'm wearing invisible handcuffs even after the literal handcuffs came off. Coming out of prison, you feel like, and I'm stealing your words again, Shelley, that you're now known for the rest of the li- your life for the worst decision you ever made or the worst thing you ever did or the worst circumstance, at least, you found yourself in. So putting aside guilt and innocence, that's not the purpose of this show. We're here to talk about restorative justice, what restorative justice means, what it means to live with a criminal record, what it means to seek employment with a criminal record, how we as a society treat those doing so. Shelley, I, I, you're probably sitting there, uh, you know, uh, gritting your teeth that I stole some of your thunder. Your story is so inspirational. Maybe you could start by sharing with our listeners a little bit about your journey to where you are today. Absolutely. Yeah, so, you know, I grew up with teen parents, and um, I think my uh, my mom was just turned 18 when she gave birth to me, and my dad was also 18 as well. And although my mother was not an addict, uh, my father was, and he was in and out of prison most of my life for drugs and alcohol. And he thought that doing drugs was cool. And he wanted me to partake in that with him. And um, so at the age of 11, he got me drunk for the very first time. And then when I lived with him in high school, um, he wanted, he tried to get me to use, you know, harder drugs with him. And so this was my influence and you know, my my upbringing and my role models, you know, growing up. And and you don't know what you don't know. And if that's all you've been taught, that way of life, you end up, you know, 70% of children follow in their parents' footsteps. And so, right. like my father, I ended up becoming uh, an addict and also going to prison myself. And, you know, after my arrest... Uh, for selling, getting caught by the federal government for selling drugs, I found out I was pregnant. And I knew at that moment that was it was time to change my life, that I couldn't be the same type of parent that my father was to me to my child, and then I needed to get clean and change my ways, and so I did. And um, so here I am today, uh, been clean and sober uh, for over six years now, so... And uh, I love it. I love being clean and sober. And I just, I love my life now. And the thought of ever going back to that is just 
it's not even an option anymore. Shelly, I know you're here representing your own journey. You're not representing the views of your employer. But aside from just taking a moment to honor the the courage that you've had in your own life to get out of, of that, as you've called it in the past, that loser's loop, and fundamentally change everything about your reality and your prospects, I, I just want to take a moment and, and honor you for that and, and give you... Um, respect and blessings. If you could Thank talk, you. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna engage Richard here in a second. Who, by the way, I just want to say up front so we don't we don't in any way risk there seeming like as there never is on this show a good guy and a bad guy. We're trying to show, demonstrate through in the show an equal footing that we can learn from divergent points of view. We can hold divergent points of view and still honor each other and still listen. And we're going to involve Richard Reese in a moment, who I hope you don't mind me saying, Richard, in one of our pregame discussions, said you said, I think you're a, uh, a, a West Village liberal uh, trapped in a management employment uh, job. So, uh, it, it, you know, or rather management employment law practice, I should say. We're going to get to the issue of this show in particular around em- employment of the formerly incarcerated. Shelley, you're now without naming the corporation you're in a in a in a great professional position uh, congrats to you and you're helping to bring other people along on the kind of the the jet stream of of your professional trajectory can you talk a little bit about how you went from prison to currently being an executive at a in a major international company absolutely so a lot of hard work determination and grit <laughs> i um you know, got out of prison, and I've always been, uh, you know, partial to. Or I've always had this uh, affinity for um, technology, and so I knew that one day I wanted to work in tech. I uh, didn't know how I was going to do it, but I thought, you know, what, maybe if I get my degree, that'll that'll be a good start. And so when I got out of prison, that's what I did. I got back into school and I started um, working towards a computer science degree. Well, while I was um, in college or going to school, um, I heard about this program called Code Tenderloin. And what's funny is um, the the news was on, and all I heard from the reporters, if you have a criminal record and you want to work in tech, then Code Tenderloin is a company that is help, will help you do that. Wow. <laughs> and I just thought, are you serious? Am I really hearing this right now? And so I contacted, you know, I've obviously contacted Code Tenderloin right away, and I signed up for the next cohort. And what they do is they they help people get, you know, entry-level jobs into tech, and, and that's exactly what they did. Um, they, they were able to take me on, you know, tech tour to all these different companies like LinkedIn and NerdWallet and Twitter and so I got to go and I got to hang out with the employees and the people that work there, right? And so I got to develop relationships and, and that really networking is really the key. They say if you can network, um, you'll have a 30% higher po- uh, op- uh, possibility of getting a job. And so, um, that came to be, came to be true for me. Um, I, one of these tech companies, I was able to make friends with some of the people that work there. And they helped advocate for me and, and get me a, a, a position. It was an entry-level position, but I thought, you know what, if I can just get my foot in the door, then I will work my way. I will work really, really hard, and I will work my way up to the top. 
And so that that was exactly what I did. And, and a year and a half later, I went from working part time at seventeen dollars and fifty cents an hour to um, you know making six figures. Shelley, that's amazing. But to, to take the devil's advocacy position, a recidivism in the United States, which is the rate at which people that have been convicted of a crime uh, commit crimes after some period of punishment is extraordinarily high, unfortunately. It's it's 75-ish percent. So, Richard, mm-hmm. Shelley's story is obviously beautiful, but it sounds statistically exceptional. How do how should employers handle the formerly incarcerated or people with a criminal record? Well, I think you have to start with the premise that most employers want to be good citizens um, and they want to do the right thing. But I think you also have to appreciate um, the playing field that employers find themselves on. The workplace is a heavily regulated environment. There are laws ranging from uh, those that pertain to wages and hours and overtime to leave and disability to prohibitions against discrimination, including prohibitions against discrimination um, uh, against a person previously convicted of a criminal offense. Then also appreciate the fact that employers are responsible for the acts of their employees. Um, if you're an employee um, and you uh, commit a crime or an act of gross negligence, something that's within the, the scope of your employment. Let's assume you're a delivery van driver and you um, uh, get into road rage and, and hit somebody, or uh, you're negligent driving without your lights on at night and you run somebody over, your employer is going to be um, vicariously liable for that right. under an old rubric called um, respondeat superior, which um, literally means let the master answer. Um, so rather old-fashioned nomenclature, but then also understand that if you employ somebody, let's assume a home health aide, um, and they get uh, they assault a patient, let's say, um, uh, that's not within the scope of their employment. Assaulting the patient is not within their job, but um, they've committed uh, a bad act um, while on the job. And an employer can be held negligent um, uh, for that. And so um, uh, they can be subject to suit uh, for negligent hiring, um, hiring someone who had a criminal record who might be violent, um, or negligently retaining that uh, employee who they might have reason to know um, uh, uh, had violent propensities, or that they failed to supervise that person. Now... Go to the, the second part, which is employers want are inherently risk adverse. Right. They don't want to spend their time in litigation. They want to just um, uh, manufacture their product or run their business. And so um, as soon as uh, someone um, uh, literally checks that box on an employment application that says, I have been convicted of a crime, and in New York you're only allowed to ask about convictions, not arrests, um, that now sets up um, a bunch of issues for that employer. Now, remember that employer wants to do um, the right thing, um, but immediately um, uh, the employer has to be cognizant of a whole bunch of laws and obligations that it has. Um, there, so, sorry if I could interrupt, sure. Richard. The the obviously the the employer's got lots of risk, and there are employers like the one that employed 
Shelley, both you know, at the beginning of her career and others that have taken a chance on her since. Um, so there's going to always be kind of folks that are organizations that are at the extreme and, and really going out of their way to be a part of inclusion and, and social justice. I got to imagine, and I'm getting a little bit, you know, for those of us not lawyers, trying to, you know, boil it down a little bit. I would imagine there's got to be way more downside for hiring someone with a criminal record. I mean, other than the fact, the, the kind of the feeling of having done a, a good thing and helping someone restore their, their life. Why would why would you you're walking through all these risks? Why would an employer take that risk? Why not just have someone who's equally qualified without a criminal record? Well, there's two reasons. One is um, uh, it's a source of workers, um, uh, and in a tight labor market, um, maybe a source of of good workers. Um, the other thing is that the employer um, really has a legal obligation to um, simply not reject an employee, an applicant for having a uh, a conviction. Um, and so there are a bunch of laws that um, require employers um, to engage in an analysis, really, um, uh, so that um, uh, they can comply with their sort of um, legal obligation not to discriminate um, against the formerly uh, incarcerated. And there's a multi-step process for that. And so uh-huh. there's a there's a federal law, the EEOC uh, Title VII law, um, uh prohibits discrimination against um, uh, rejecting an applicant simply because of criminal conviction because uh, under Title VII you can't discriminate on the basis of, of race or color and there's a statistic correlation that more um, African Americans or Hispanic men are convicted of crimes and so if you reject them for employment you're engaging in de facto discrimination. So I guess part of the part of the answer is they can't discriminate and that, that's, that's a fair answer and, and hopefully Shelley will illuminate us on whether there are actually benefits. The call, the number to call in and ask our guests, Shelley Winner and Richard Reese, questions about what it's like to live and work with a criminal record in the United States. One in three Americans has a criminal record. Uh, is 718-303-9090. That's 718-303-9090. I know this is a difficult subject for some. If you're shy about being on the air and you want to stay anonymous, you can also text a question to 917-428-4062. We'll be right back on Equal Footing. I hear the train a-coming, it's rolling around the bend, and I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison, and time keeps dragging on. But that train keeps rolling. Equal Footing with Dove Tusman is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skin care. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, the dermatologists and skincare surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient New York area locations. To make an appointment, go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. You can even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live 
or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. You're back on Equal Footing with Dove Tusman. My guests, Richard Reese and Shelley Winner, were talking about what it's like to live and work with a criminal record in America. The number is 718-303-9090 if you want to get in on the discussion. So we've hit uh, the moral imperative issue. We've hit the anti-discrimination protections that exist for people that are formerly incarcerated. On the ethical side, the, there's a, a famous Nelson Mandela quote that a nation should not be judged how it treats its highest citizens, but its lowest ones. And in a certain sense, those of us who are amongst the formerly, incarcer- formerly incarcerated are at or near the bottom of the ladder. So it's good that those protections exist. But Shelley, other than the fact that as an employer, you have to give people a fair shake from a common sense fairness perspective why should a formerly incarcerated individual take the job of someone who otherwise might have done everything right no missteps in life put themselves through college and so forth that just doesn't seem fair yeah and you know and and that's something that i addressed you know in my ted talk but you know, I believe there needs to be opportunity for both. Um, the problem is, is if we don't give people a chance to get back on their feet and we close the door every time they come knocking or, you know, we slam the door in their face, um, then what do we leave them with? You know, what opportunities are we leaving them with? And, and the odds of them or the, per- the percentage of people that are going to end up going back to what they used to do uh, is is pretty pretty high, and so, you know, I'd rather have people get out of prison, you know, who have rehabilitated themselves, ready to move on from their past and um, get a job, and you know, they're they're more likely to not reoffend, and you know, it's there's also a burden that comes along with having to, you know, lock people up for for the taxpayers. You know, it's it costs more to put somebody in prison and keep them in prison than it does to send them to Harvard. And so giving them an opportunity is not only helping them, but it's also helping our communities. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, it's a tough one, right? I mean, because (laughs) it's it's such a large it's like it's the population, as you've said, of California and Texas combined that people that have a past criminal record. And, you know, I'm reminded of the Harvey Silverglate book, Three Felonies a Day, that, you know, research shows that any any adult in the United States living their life, you know, commits crimes every day uh, unwittingly Mm -hmm. sometimes and sometimes, you know, quite wittingly, you just you don't get caught aside from the ethical uh, dynamic of us all making mistakes and doing things that are wrong, whether it's hurting a loved one or 
uh, you know, any kind of ethical transgression that's not covered by the law of the land, but is 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 doing something wrong. So we can't we can't have these invisible handcuffs as you've as you've used that term. I love that term, Shelley, for our, yeah. our whole lives. But on the other hand, it, we also can't penalize those that have followed the rules. We've, we've got uh, the board is is lighting up, so I know this is a topic that is um, that is hitting a nerve. Can, can I just interject <laughs> one one thing? You know, Shelley knows Shelley's a good person. We know Shelley's a good person. When an employer gets an applicant from someone who they are meeting for the first time and that applicant has um, uh, checked the box that they are, uh, uh, that they have been convicted of a crime, um, that employer then has a, uh, uh, a real challenge. Um, they have to figure out whether that is someone who has been rehabilitated. They have to figure out whether that person um, uh, is a good person as opposed to people who have been to prison uh, and who are not. Um, uh, and so, in fact, um, cognizant of that, the law um, and the New York State human rights law and the New York State correction law sets up a test that employers must follow to help employers guide them through um, uh, some of those um, issues to make a determination whether or not um, this is a person who um, is employable and who may deserve protection of the law. Right. Well, one, you know, and I experienced this with my current employer because um, I was actually discriminated against uh, in the very beginning, and I had to, I had to fight to to show them like listen hey i am i am not that person anymore i have completely changed my life and what i what i did was i i gave them i wrote them a letter and i i talked a little bit about what i did wrong but more importantly i focused on what i did right Mm -hmm. and why they should give me that job and then i sent them proof of my rehabilitation because i had all these certificates of rehabilitative programs that i had taken and completed and so i scanned those to my my cloud drive, and then I sent that off with my with my letter, and I said, "Hey, you know, here's proof that I'm not lying. I put in the work. I'm I'm rehabilitated, and I even had you know reference letters um, or character reference letters from you know my probation officer, uh, my mentor, and, and and a couple other folks. So you know, there are ways to prove and to show a, an employer like, hey, I, I'm I'm uh, I've changed." Shelly, do you sometimes feel like you are living constantly under that shadow of doubt where you have to kind of prove yourself more than the next person? And is if so, is that a problem or a blessing for you? You know, when I, I think when I first started, um, that was the case. But I think as I developed my brand and people got to know me and, you know, those I guess stigmas or those um, perceptions or stereotypes that people had about formerly incarcerated were broken because I was very um, just humble, I was kind, you know, easy to work with, motivated, you know, excited. Um, <laughs> and those are all characteristics of, of, of somebody that, you know, makes a great employee. And so when people found that I was easy to work with and, you know, I, I was easy to get along with, um, you know, the, those feelings that I had that this spotlight was on me went away a little bit. Um, but I think there is still a spotlight to some degree, but it's not as bad as it was. We're going to get to, we have some callers waiting and I have sure. a text question as well, but I want to riff on this last point, Richard, with you for a moment. 
what about the the person who is putting society coworkers clients at at real risk because their crime had to do directly with what they're doing in the workforce each, each day how how do you as a as an employer um, protect yourself from the not being given the whole truth uh, not understanding maybe the details of of a case I mean, you can't expect to be you're not you can't be judge and jury i mean you've got to some extent got to rely on the the word of of the person uh, of the, the applicant no well um that's where you start i mean you could also do a a, a background check um a criminal history check a credit check um and uh and of course a reference check is the onus on you to do those things as an employer well the onus is it ends up being on the employer because the employer has a responsibility to itself to its employees to uh to those uh to its clients um to provide them a safe uh, uh to provide employees a safe work environment uh to ensure uh that its clients are not going to be subject to uh, to someone who has a propensity for uh, engaging in some sort of, uh, of criminal act. Um, so uh, that does fall to the employer. In fact, the state, uh, under the correction law, requires an employer to engage um, in a rather detailed um, uh, investigation and to consider things such as um, uh, the directness of the criminal offense to the job. Let's say if you've convicted of, of uh, passing bad checks, you uh, probably can get rejected uh, by the bank to which you apply because of your criminal history. Um, but the state also requires uh, employers to look at uh, uh, other things. Um, clearly, the, crim- the nature of the crime. Um, uh, the amount of time that's happened since the crime was committed. Was sure. this a stupid thing you did when you were a teenager? Um, uh, and now it's many years later, right. um, but there's still a conviction. Um, the age of the individual, again, you know, is this something that's happened long in the past and you've now grown up and matured since you've committed that, uh, that offense? Um, the serious of the crime, was someone hurt? Um, uh, or, you know, the, the size of... Um, of uh, the financial wrongdoing, um, and uh, and also it requires employers to look at um, what has happened to that individual, as such as a Shelley, since the time that they uh, were uh, either convicted or for, uh, formerly incarcerated. Have they been rehabilitated? Right. Um, have they gone through training programs? Do they have letters of reference? So Shelley did it exactly correct, um, uh, and. You know, these issues are terribly challenging for an employer. Um, When I was an in-house lawyer, um, I worked at a utility company, and, you know, I would sometimes get calls such as, um, we have a uh, a lineman who's been with us for 10 years. Um, They have been uh, convicted, and one of their job responsibilities is driving a bucket truck um, uh, to the job site, mm-hmm. and uh, that individual was convicted of uh, of a DUI. That's a criminal offense. And so, what does the employer do? Um, it all comes into risk. If they hire that employee back, um, uh, are they now hiring an employee who's driving a company truck who has been formally convicted of of uh, DUI and may put the uh, uh, community at risk, or the company at risk, or the employee at risk? Um, uh, or don't they? Um, 
And that's just one example of the many challenging decisions that companies have to make. And often, it's usually the company saying, we want to hire the person back, or we want to hire this person because they're terrific, but we are really concerned about the liability attached to that. It's such a tough question. I mean, can you imagine, I mean, I I know this from my own life as well, of the feeling of being judged through your life for, you know, the worst act in your life. And it's got to be a challenge for employers to to figure out how to do the right thing. Those are those variables that you mentioned, Richard, are important. Uh, some of them I would have would have thought of or were intuitive, like the time that's passed. Uh, others, I guess, are more technical around how close to the job function is is the uh, the, the the previous offense. We're going to take a call from Tracy in Los Angeles on this topic of living and working with a criminal record in the United States. Tracy, you're on equal footing. Welcome. Thank you, Gov. And um, thank you, Richard and Shelley. And Shelley, I'm actually, it's not a question. I'm calling to acknowledge you um, for the work that you are doing. I've been working with the community in Skid Row here for the last couple of years. So I have a lot of people that I'm connected with that are formerly incarcerated and in recovery and I'm a complete stand for them to be able to get their lives back together and be hired. And I, I know the challenges that they face. So I thank you for, um, you know, being a stand as well. And I look forward to watching your TED Talk. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You know, I mean, oh, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, uh, also, I know as you, as fellow Californian, I'm sure you're aware there are a few propositions on our upcoming ballot, 17 and 20, that have to do with um, amending the California Constitution to allow former those formerly convicted of a felony to vote, which I highly support, and then Prop 20, I'm not supporting <laughs> amending uh, <laughs> the crime. So thank you. Yes, thank you. Tracy, thanks for calling in. Shelley and I met also in our own restorative, rehabilitative journeys. And I echo your sentiment, Tracy, and I appreciate you calling in. You're an inspiration for for many people. And actually, I'd like to take a moment and acknowledge anybody who's listening or anybody who's listening who has a loved one who has been through the criminal justice system, whether they were guilty, whether they were innocent, whether the... Uh, whether their punishment fit the crime or not. Everybody who's been through that um, understands how difficult it is for obviously the person going through it, obviously the the people that have been hurt by the crimes in question, but also a broader community that we don't talk about enough, the children and the parents and the siblings and the friends and so forth that suffer alongside. You know, this... This show is is faith inspired. This is not a religious show, but in in it certainly come to being in my life as a result of of um, a journey of faith. And I don't think I've shared on the show before that when I was in quote unquote administrative detention, which again was is Orwellian speak for a terrible prison in Colombia uh, for some time. My life was literally saved by a uh, a group 
uh, a group called Chabad. Uh, they, there are entities within Chabad, like Aleph Institute, that work with people that are in prison and uh, work with them both in terms of access to prayer books, access to spiritual companionship, and and uh, general conversation, as well as advocacy in their uh, legal case, advocacy in their restorative journey, and so forth. So. Uh, Tracy gave a shout out to you, Shelley. I'm echoing that shout out. I'm shouting out to those that have lived through this in any respect. We all deserve um, compassion. And for those of you that are actively now working like Shelley, like Richard, in one way or another on this issue, I wish you great uh, blessings and 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 uh, strength in your in your path. We're going to take our, our call in number is 718-303-9090. You can also text a question if you prefer not to be on the air at 917-428-4062. We're going to take another quick break and then we're going to take a caller on line one. We'll be right back with Equal Footing. small or medium-sized business owner who wants to provide a low-cost, effective health benefit for your employees, or a school administrator who wants to ensure all of your students have the proper vaccines, or maybe you're a parent trying to keep your family's medical records up to date. Well, welcome to DocuVax, an easy-to-use digital locker accessible on your laptop or smartphone that allows you to safely store and validate basic medical information, including immunization records, lab results, even x-rays and MRIs. Gone are the days of losing time tracking down old medical records or sharing test results with a new healthcare provider. The DocuVax system covers over 60 different important elements of your medical profile, from flu and tetanus vaccines to colorectal and breast cancer screenings to blood type and allergies. To sign up, go to www.docuvax.com or call 833-859-1933. For as little as $9.99 per month, DocuVax subscribers can privately access all of their medical records from a secure HIPAA-compliant digital storage facility. And as a DocuVax subscriber, medical professionals are on call for you 24 hours a day to validate your vaccine records, blood tests, or anything else in your locker. DocuVax medical data is never accessible unless the individual subscriber wants to share it privately using a proprietary QR code-based system that keeps data secure at all times. So put an end to worrying if you or someone you care about is up to date on a particular vaccine, blood test, or an important preventative screening. Take control of your medical file and sign up at DocuVax.com. And if your organization is interested in learning about becoming a DocuVax sponsor to get group discounts, please call 833-859-1933. That's 833-859-1933. Operators are standing by. All right, we're back on equal footing. We're talking about what it's like to live and work with a criminal record in the United States. One in three Americans have a criminal record. Uh, and we have wonderful guests this evening. Richard Reese, who's a management lawyer, management employment lawyer, and one of the leaders in his space. Shelley Winner, 
who is a leading advocate on restorative justice. We're going to take a call from Stan. How are you doing tonight, Stan? How are you? Good evening, gentlemen. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't know that, ladies and gentlemen. I apologize. Let me take uh, the negative view here tonight. Not times I do, sometimes I don't. Uh, The idea that rehabilitation, people have a uh, criminal record and should be allowed to get back into society, yes and no. In that a rapist, in that a murderer, in that a sodomizer, a child molester, should be allowed to have the criminal record to get back into society? No. Absolutely not, because nine out of ten times they will repeat. Stan, let me ask you a question. Let's I'm not finished yet. I, I understand, but I, so just, just put it into then your, your the, the fodder. Let's assume that we agree with you. Does that mean they should stay in jail for the rest of their lives? If it was up to me, yes. I see. Uh, rehabilitation has its point in many... White-collar crime, somebody steals a million dollars from people, they should go to jail. If it, it depends on the crime. White-collar crime is treated much less easier, much than hard-time crime. And people with records, you know, if you steal $50 from your company and you want to get back into society, chances are you could possibly get back into society. But I have no no thoughts at all about allowing a sodomizer or a convicted rapist or a child molester who has a record who wants to apply for a job or move into my area to give him a chance. No the kind re- of job. You're saying not you at all. Not. not at all. Absolutely not. So what because we- basically, the record is there. They uh, recidivism. I may be the word, the constant doing it again and so forth. White collar crime is different. We allow it's a different. It's two different uh, societies. We allow in white collar crime more to get back into jobs if they have like that young lady to some extent who called. But the hard crimes who have records who have criminal records and try to find a job. Uh-uh. Sorry, I have no. I no appreciate. No, this is always this a is pleasure. What the show is about. Yes, yeah, Stan, I appreciate it. So Richard, Stan's making a, a point that I bet a lot of people uh, would also make. Which is that, you know what, there's a certain line that's if it's crossed in your life, you should never be able to come back from. And this may be a difficult question for you to answer, given you represent your clients. I don't know if you can answer, if you want to answer in your, with your advocacy hat on or, or with your, with your, you know, personal views shining forth. But do you, do you agree with Stan? Is there a line that, that from which people should never be able to come back from? Well, never is a tough word for any lawyer to, uh, to commit to. Um, look, there are uh, every case has to get judged on its own merits. Um, the law requires every case to be judged uh, on its own merits. Um, if I get into a bar fight when I'm 18 and I knock somebody down and they hit their head and uh, uh, and they were to pass away and I do some time for that sort of uh, uh, negligent homicide, uh, uh, then um, uh, and now it's 10 years later. Um, uh, should it be that I never get to be uh, employed again? In fact, the public policy of both the federal government um, and the state and local governments are that um, are contrary to that. Um, they want um, uh, the formerly incarcerated to be employed. Um, they make employers do the balancing test. Uh, uh, as to um, going through the risk and raising uh, and considering the very uh, the factors that have that go into really the consideration of whether someone is employable or not. But to say never 
um, uh, just doesn't um, uh, make sense. Every case um, has to be judged on its own merits because um, uh, there are people who do turn their lives around and they should be entitled to uh, to employment. It's good for all of us that they are uh, employed. You know, Stan's question is a is a fair one, and I appreciate the kind of legalistic response, which is that you know the the, the courts adjudicate that, and you can never never say never, but at the end of the day, there are people that that commit heinous crimes that are in incarcerated for a period of time and then do come back to society. So it's not we don't have a choice. I mean, that debt has been paid as we've determined as a society. So don't we have to have a mechanism then? Otherwise, all that we're doing is creating a system of perpetual punishment. Correct. And in fact, the New York State correction law tends to cre- uh, to create that Mechanism It forces employers to consider all these different variables when determining whether or not an employee, uh, an applicant poses an, a, uh, an unacceptable risk uh, uh, to the employer um, or the employer's clients. Shelley, how long were you in prison? I had a four-year sentence. I probably did uh, about a year and a half um, because I got time off for completing drug treatment, and then I got my good time, and then also got some of my sentence, um, I was sent to the halfway house. And, and you were lucky, as I've heard you're telling, that you were in a prison that had programs, that had rehabilitation programs and education, correct? Absolutely, yeah. I My whole time in prison was spent taking um, programs. It kind of felt like being in school or something because, you know, I'd wake up in the morning and go to various classes and different programs, and um, that's how I spent my time. So I can't believe we're having this discussion on the air, but here we go. Uh, I was in prison for about 10 and a half months, and again, technically, I'm, I'm sure I can hear my lawyer's voice in my say in my head saying it was administrative detention because I don't have a, a conviction. Tech, I don't even know whether to, how to answer whether I have a criminal record or not. I was arrested and charged, but I didn't have a ratified uh, verdict, and so my case is... is um, it's a little bit unusual, but on the other hand, reputationally, it's it's all the same. Now, the prison I was in had had, in the previous uh, 16, 17 years, had had over 200 people that were killed in the prison. There were two people on my cell block and the one right below me that were killed when I was there. Uh, some other show, I, I can't, I'm not emotionally prepared to do it right now. We'll talk about some of the things that I witnessed and experienced personally there. I'm wondering if you heard the types of discussions, and maybe in the facility you were in, Shelley, you didn't, and that's okay. But I remember having a number of discussions that, in retrospect, seem absolutely morbid and unbelievable, but at the time felt quite practical, which were speculative discussions with other inmates about body parts that I would have given up or they would have given up in exchange for not doing the time, not being in the place. And I think that happens. I've spoken to a lot of people that are in this journey, uh, everywhere from people that are formerly incarcerated, people that are working with the formerly incarcerated, people that are advocating on different sides of the issue. And I've heard that this is actually a common conversation. This, do, you know, what would you prefer, corporal punishment versus time in, in jail? And I'm going to go somewhere at this point. So, Richard, keep your uh, ears <laughs> uh, up. But Shelley, did you ever witness or have any of those type of conversations? You know, I'd give up my I'd give up my left arm to be out of here, that type of thing. 
I think maybe um, for the inmates that were lifers, possibly so, yeah. You know, and the, uh, you know, the prison that you were in, you know, obviously was, you know, very different than some of the prisons here in the United States. Um, I couldn't even imagine being in that type of an environment. And even some of the prisons in the United States are horrible and don't offer programming. I just ended up being very, very lucky going to uh, a prison in the Bay Area, which is a very progressive area, uh, forward-thinking area, and, you know, they are about rehabilitation. And so they offered a slew of um, different programs and classes for me to take, but that's not the case for every prison, and it's unfortunate, you know, that that we, we just lock people up, but we don't teach them a, a new way of life. We don't help rehabilitate them, and I think that's the case for the for most prisons, uh, even, you know, in the United States. I think it's also a question of us really as society coming to terms with the real punishment we're doling out because we say, you know, we're giving someone a 10 year sentence or you know a one year sentence plus probation or whatever it might be. But we're also doling out a punishment where there's that black mark for the rest of their lives or they have to register to be living right. in a certain area or whatever, whether that's right or wrong. I'm not making a, a judgment on whether the, the sentence is right or wrong, but I do think there's not, there isn't truth in sentencing in the sense that, there isn't really clear sometimes to jur- the jury or, or to society at large what the punishment really is. And Richard, having worked for so many years, seeing a much broader panoply of these situations that either Shelley or I have, have seen personally with your corporate clients, do you feel that if you have a serious criminal record in the United States, not not a, a, a misdemeanor or something where you've actually done time. Do you feel like it is perpetual punishment? Do you see your clients, employees over the course of your career on, on, in some, do you see that people emerge or are people now stuck forever in with those invisible handcuffs? If you committed a serious offense um, and you're applying for employment, um, most employers um, will really try to shed that risk and not bring you into the workforce um, because to ask them to do otherwise um, is they feel, and, and I think correctly, that they're being put in a terrible position, um, that they, um, as much as they want to be good citizens, um, uh, they don't um, uh, want to be in a position where they endanger their workforce. They don't want to be in a position where they're bringing on perhaps um, unnecessary litigation. Um, uh, and uh, there's no backstop for them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's nothing to um, to lessen uh, their liability for taking um, their risk. There are some state programs that will um, uh, give employers uh, uh, some relief, but it, it comes in three and five thousand dollar increments when defending some sort of lawsuit is literally in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it's almost negligible. Um, so if we're going to get to that place where we're going to give employers um, some comfort, there's going to have to be some sort of legislative uh, incentive for them to uh, employ a high risk 
uh, applicant. So let's let's flip the script for a moment, and, and you probably would have never expected I would ask this question to either of you on this show. I'll start with you, Richard. But why not corporal punishment? I mean, why shouldn't I? If if I got in my case, I was charged. It, it doesn't matter that I wasn't convicted. I, I was I was charged, and I and because I was abroad, I ended up in in prison awaiting extradition of a white collar crime of of conspiracy to commit securities fraud. Why not, in a situation like that, say, uh, okay, you get to, um, you can lose a limb and be done with this? The I, 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 only reason I'm asking that not tongue-in-cheek is I've actually lived through it. And there are there are religious references to this. I mean, I, I was speaking to a rabbi who's very close to me before the show, talking about how difficult this show is probably going to be personally for me. And I asked him what the Jewish view, I'm Jewish, as some of the listeners know, was on prison. He said, you know, it's, I'm not an expert, but there isn't really a place for prison in, in, in Jewish law. Uh, so I'm just giving that as an example. Why not, why not have another form of punishment? If it's not corporal, why not it be five times the, the financial loss that you've caused? Or why not do community service in providing succor to the communities that you may have hurt with the crime for 20 years. Why do we why do we send people to a cage? Well, I think from I mean uh, this is way off the the employment uh, uh, <laughs> uh, track, but um, look, I think we as a society constantly try to figure out um, uh, how to um, find corrective action um, and uh, and have it be in a modality that we can live with. Um, so loss of liberty um, is something that we find palatable. Um, uh, you know, engaging some sort of uh, corporal punishment, um, I think, is something we don't find acceptable. How are we going to figure out um, uh, whether it's a finger or, or a leg? Um, and uh, I'm not sure we want juries making those decisions, and I'm not quite sure we want judges making those decisions. And besides, um, I'm going to need that finger and that leg if I'm going to get a job uh, when I get out of jail. So um, I think that's a, a constant struggle. And, we, of course, we do find um, offenders. Um, we do engage in, in uh, alternative sentencing. Um, I don't know if we have ever found the magic formula yet, but clearly loss of liberty is the, is the modality that um, we all find um, somehow acceptable, as imperfect as it may be. I think the, there's another one in three that merits mentioning here. One in three, the title of this show has to do with the fact that one in three Americans have a criminal record. Also, one in three people incarcerated in the United States are physically or sexually abused during their incarceration. So this doesn't just happen in... Colombia or other places. It happens in here. It happens a lot. There's very little advocacy about it. And in a sense, that is corporal punishment because we know statistically it's going to happen and we are putting people in a cage where that's going to happen. Shelley, do you think there should be, you think we should be able to elect as a, as a, an individual being sentenced some sort of corporal punishment? And I guess, and more broadly, do you think we should have a completely different approach to the way that we, uh, mete out justice? Yeah. So as far as corporal punishment goes, um, I don't know if I fully agree with with having that uh, as an option um, because we need to get to the root of the behavior and we need to try to fix that behavior. And the way to do that is to teach people a new way of life. Um, and a new way to behave and a new way to think. We need to reprogram their brain, and the way to do that is with programs and classes. And I think 
personally, I feel that all prisons should not be prisons. They should be turned into rehabilitation centers. Right. And people should be forced to become rehabilitated, <laughs> whether they like it or not. Because here's what I think. I think they may, I believe there's going to be pushback, obviously, because not everybody wants to be rehabilitated. But here's what I do think. And I have a friend who's living proof of this, that he started going to these classes simply because he knew if he went to these classes, he was going to get time off his sentence. He did not agree or believe with anything that was being taught. But what happened was over time, what he was learning started to make sense. And because those things started to make sense, things started to click in his brain. And he not, I mean, he, it, it just kind of happened naturally. And then once things started to make sense and he learned this new way of life, he thought, man, I've been blind for so long. Right. And this is the guy that I put in my TED Talk. Right, so it's that like we, talk for, about. we force people to be in a cage, so we right. can also force them to go through rehabilitation. We're going to come right back, and I'm going to ask in the last couple of minutes that, that are left to us in the show for Richard and Shelley, for you guys to kind of switch roles for a minute and advocate for the point of view on the other side. We'll be right back on Equal Funding. Equal Footing with Dove Tuzman is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skin care. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, the dermatologists and skincare surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient New York area locations. To make an appointment, go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. You can even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. Right, you're back on equal footing. The topic of tonight's show is one in three living and working with a criminal record in the United States. We just have about a minute and a half left. Richard Reese, can you advocate very quickly as to why we should just be involved in rehabilitation and not have any bans for employment or have any rules around employment uh, after being incarcerated? Look, I want to be a good corporate citizen. I want to be a good employer. I want to have good standing in my community. Um, I want uh, to do uh, well. And so um, I want to be able to uh, hire individuals who have had perhaps a a checkered past or not know about that past and just give them uh, a clean um, a slate to work from um, and add them to my workforce. Wonderful. Uh, Shelley, thanks, Richard. Shelley, why should employers not ever hire people with a uh, stay away from people with a criminal record? <laughs> because they pose too much of a risk. They're a liability. If they're making those types of decisions in life, 
Um, clearly, you know, they, they could make those types of decisions at my business. And I just, I can't have that. I've got too much to lose. I've worked too hard to get to where I am, and I just can't take that Complicated risk. issue. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week on Equal Footing. Thank you, Richard Reese. Thank you, Shelley Winner. God bless. Thank you.